we're joined by Brendan Keenan, business columnist with independent newspapers. Larry Donnelly is a law lecturer in NUI Galway. And Gina Menzies is a theologian and lecturer in medical ethics at the Royal College of Surgeons. And thank you very much for joining us this morning. Good morning to you all. And of course, lots of photos on the papers this morning about the rugby match yesterday. And Gina, you were fortunate enough to be at the match. I was, Sarah. And if I'm a bit croaky this morning, it's because of that. I have never shouted or sung the, the fields of Athenry so loudly. And we certainly, you know, won the, the, the spectators, you know, were the 16th man, as they often say. It must have been very strange, though, afterwards that, um, uh, you know, England had to come out and collect the cup, even though they'd lost the match. Were you there for that? Oh, I was. And, you know, I thought, you know, you should respect those who won the championship. And I think many of the Irish supporters, you know, stayed and they clapped. But I have to say the English team, they, they did look quite flat. Mm. You know, they won the championship, but they lost the match that they felt that they shouldn't have lost. And the Irish team were absolutely sensational right up to the end. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I was surrounded by quite a few English people who acknowledged that, you know, the better team won. And I thought um, Eddie Jones, the um, the English coach, said the most extraordinary thing afterwards. I think he said uh, he hadn't quite prepared the team. I mean, he obviously was taking responsibility for the loss. <coughs> but he said, uh, like, why would you say something like that? This team that claimed to be the best in the world. But, you know, one of the things is Ireland are now uh, fourth ranked in the world and they have beaten the three teams above them. They've beaten New Zealand, Australia and England in the last few months. So, I mean, they really can do it. It's just a shame that they didn't do it a little earlier in the season. But the other extraordinary thing yesterday was, I don't know if you watched it, but I was torn between watching the end of the French-Welsh match. I was in the Aviva Stadium about an hour beforehand and everybody was sort of having a drink. And then suddenly people started gravitating to the big TV screens and suddenly there was a massive crowd watching the end of this match, which went 20 minutes over the time. And Wayne Barnes seemed to have the referee's nightmare game. And I know enough about rugby to wonder why he wasn't awarding a penalty try to France. And uh, at 16 minutes, I decided I had to go to see the Irish match. And uh, a lot of people actually stayed to see the final result where France actually won. You can see the voices And going. Brendan Keenan, you were watching it on television and the extension of that other match meant that TV viewers missed the anthems which can often mean be the most exciting part um, of the match and there are lots of columns today in the papers about a United Ireland but of course it was a United Ireland team that won yesterday wasn't it? Well it always has been a United Ireland team and you know without getting serious the, the, the issues over the rugby anthem are absolutely the same issues on the whole United Irish question, and everybody takes up takes up their own thing. Um, but here, rugby's a strange game. All the experts were talking about the injury time in the Welsh French game. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no injury time in rugby. The clock is stopped for injuries, yeah. and 80 minutes is full time. And if you play over it, it's because the ball is still in play. It's not injury time. So, so are you saying there are people talking about rugby when they don't know no, that no, much about Shane, it? Shane, <laughs> Shane Horgan and, 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 and Grant, the, 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 the experts, you know, they kept calling this Welsh-French thing injury time. So pedantic man that I am, I said, hang on a minute. I approve it's of, not injury time. I approve of pedantry <laughs> and we shall have a memo sent to the guilty parties. Um, I'll press on and perhaps read the main headlines on the newspapers. Um, The Sunday Independent 
Trump to take back Irish jobs. Uh, Neve Horan has a big interview with Sean Spicer, the press secretary, and uh, he says the White House advisers dire warning, no deal for undocumented Irish. They also have a photo of the many of the papers do this morning of Dara Fitzpatrick funeral yesterday. Uh, Mammy is going to heaven is their sad headline. The Sunday Times, they have a picture of the record breaking rugby team. But their main headline is rebels to hold fire as Kenny plays for time. In stark contrast to the Sunday Business Post take, which says rebels turn up heat on Kenny over breach of trust on departure timeline. So you can choose your facts and your papers this morning. Their main headline, though, is that law firms, banks and insurers are eyeing Dublin after Brexit and they list a number of major firms that are seeking office space to double the number of bankers in Ireland. Isn't that great? More bankers in Ireland. We can all celebrate that. The Irish Mail on Sunday, they lead with Dara Fitzpatrick's funeral. Sisters poignant plea to God for Dara Fitzpatrick's missing crew. You owe us one. We are calling it in. Bring them home. And that's everybody's hope that the remaining bodies will be found. The funeral was attended by President Michael D. Higgins and the Taoiseach, who was home in time um, from America for that. And the tabloids, um, Irish Sunday Mirror, they also lead. Farewell, Dara, our hero. Funeral tributes to rescue pilots, bravery and kindness. And then the Sunday World, they feature on the death of another woman. That was Danielle McLaughlin's murder in India. And they're saying that the Indian thug held for rape and murder of the Irish girl was on bail for assault. Um, Larry Donnelly, sad funeral yesterday for Dara Fitzpatrick and a lot of well-deserved coverage about it in the papers. I suppose most people hoping, as her sister said, that the bodies of the remaining crew will be discovered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just a horrifically, horrifically sad uh, event. And I think that a lot of the commentary this week, I think, has rightly focused on uh, these men and women who do these things and they do them for us and they do them uh, selflessly. And how lucky are we who get to work in comfort and safety while they're out there uh, risking their lives on a daily basis for us? Uh, I think in the papers today, I think uh, the tribute paid by Kevin Myers uh, in the Sunday Times is very, very good. Evidently, he knew uh, Dara had met her on a training exercise when she was a very very young woman uh, and I think he writes poignantly uh, about her loss and again about the sacrifice. He does. He says towards the end when we pass from this world into either the extinction of godless nihilism or the realm of heavenly perfection in that final microsecond of change the fearful querulous soul might wonder how was this life that I now leave was all duty done were people made better wiser happier by my fleeting mortal span shall the world grieve at my departure. It was very good, wasn't it? Gina? It was. And well deserved. It was, it was actually, it's very poetic. And uh, I suppose align with that, you could uh, reference Joseph O'Connor's poem on the um, outside of the Independent, where he points out that um, hero is a word thrown around like the spray. I mean, you know, we t- actually, it's interesting in the light of yesterday, you know, we all got excited over the rugby. Hero is a word thrown around like the spray. For those who score a goal, win a point, stand to fight. And, you know, it's a word that we do throw around. And yet I think, you know, Dara and her crew, they're the real kind of heroes, the people. He also referenced, you know, people who get up in the middle of the night and there are many people, you know, in the rescue and the uh, services. Uh, and, you know, when you think of, you know, doctors as well on call who do get up in the middle of the night and who quietly and, you know, without noise go to, to, to the help of other people. And they are the kind of quiet heroes and they are real, real heroes and heroines. Yeah, Brendan Keenan, sometimes I often wonder, and obviously, in this case it was fishermen they have to be there I get frustrated sometimes if there are recreational users or adventurous sports people 
Do they understand the lives that have to be put at risk to rescue them if something goes wrong? And that's mountain rescue, the lifeboats, the Coast Guard, you know, a lot of people doing that yeah. work. Well, well, of course, in a sense, they don't. But since they've got themselves into trouble, there are people who don't even understand the dangers to themselves. And, you know, there'll always be people like that. And maybe I've been one myself at times. Uh, but so, you know, the rescue services are there and uh, they have to go out, obviously, irrespective of the of, of the cause. And but, you know, it shows that it's always dangerous. This was not in, a, in one sense, a complicated job. And secondly, the helicopter 116 was doing top cover. Uh, the, the tricky bit is putting the winch man down and collecting mm-hmm. the injured sailor. The other helicopter was doing that. And we won't know the cause of this crash for months or maybe even years uh, uh, exactly. And, and there's no point in talking about that. But it, what I'm, the point I'm making is that even routine work as it is for firefighters and guards, can be dangerous at any moment. Danger is always lurking, and that's where the heroism comes in because, you know, every time you go out, however routine the patrol, that uh, there's a risk. And it's, it's non-discriminatory. I think that was your point about, you know, people um, taking you know, taking part in dangerous, if you like, sporting activities. Um, those who go to the rescue, they don't discriminate. Like a doctor doesn't discriminate as to what's the cause of your illness. Their their duty and their obligation is, is to help irrespective. And if they start making judgments as to, yeah. you know, whether you got into this mess yourself or whether it came about through nature or other, you can't do that. So, I mean, that's what their, their oath of is really yeah. is to always rescue. I was reminded of that amazing film, I can't remember the actual details but but somebody was stuck uh, in a kind of a cliff over the sea and the helicopter had to hover literally yards from the cliff face and the winch man is going down between the, you know, into the thing. So that's the kind of thing they have to do sometimes as well, absolutely high risk stuff and you know this job w- wouldn't have been categorised as that so just show Yeah, you. we know not um, the day. Um, we're going to turn now to Enda Kenny's uh, visit to uh, Washington, D.C. And we're going to start off by playing a little bit of the speech he made at the official reception. And he's making the speech with U.S. President Donald Trump standing right behind him. And it's fitting that we gather here each year to celebrate St. Patrick and his legacy. He, too, of course, was an immigrant. And though he is, of course, the patron saint of Ireland for many people around the globe, he's also a symbol of indeed the patron of immigrants. Here in America, new great country, 35 million people claim Irish heritage and the Irish have contributed to the economic, social, political and cultural life of this great country over the last 200 years. Ireland came to America because deprived of liberty, deprived of opportunity, of safety, of even food itself, The Irish believed, and four decades before Lady Liberty lifted her lamp, we were the wretched refuse on the teeming shore. We believed in the shelter of America, in the compassion of America, in the opportunity of America. We came and we became Americans. We lived the words of John F. Kennedy long before he uttered them. We asked not what America could do for us, but what we could do for America, and we still do. And that was Enda Kenny speaking at the official uh, reception for him in Washington, D.C. on Thursday night. So, Larry Donnelly, opinion is divided in the papers today, and it's this 
moral question. Do you go out there and meet the man, you know, that nobody likes because you have to fight for your own best interests? And perhaps you can take an opportunity like he did there to give a moral message yeah. about all immigrants or do you take the higher ground and and steer clear? Well, I think the first thing to say is I think the Taoiseach performed admirably uh, under the circumstances. I think it was a diplomatically a very, very tricky situation. I think he did as best he could, I think, in, the, in his speech and what he said and how he conducted himself. Uh, and I'm, I'm, not always, I'm not always favorable to the Taoiseach, it should be said. Uh, but uh, in how he conducted himself, I think he did himself proud and I think he did the Irish people proud. Now, as for this debate, which has raged on for a while now about whether he should have gone, or not. Um, it, quite frankly, it's nonsense to suggest he should not have gone. He had to go. Uh, and the fact that Trump is who he is makes it even more imperative uh, that he go. And indeed, what I think we're seeing here in the papers is something of a divide between, uh, I think, people who are focused on uh, what Ireland has to do and the, diff- the difficult situation and the complexities uh, of, of that, and also, I think, people who are focused on uh, the longstanding ties, the relationship between Ireland and the U.S., and how this is much bigger than one individual. We have on, the, on those side, on, that's on one side, we have, I think, uh, people who take a sensible approach. On the other hand, however, we have people who, I guess, at some level, uh, are uncomfortable with the real world and, and seem to, to talk about an ideal world world uh, that doesn't exist, quite frankly. Uh, and I think Martin O'Malley, who I have a lot of time for, mm-hmm. uh, his piece in the Business Post, to be honest, to be perfectly frank, is rubbish. Uh, and I think He's very th- critical. Yeah. I think some of the things he said in the, in the, in the lineup to it, the, you know, they shouldn't go, the, the, the Taoiseach shouldn't go. Uh, he casually calls all of the people around the president white supremacists. I think that's a little bit over the top and a little bit rich. Uh, and what I would say to him is, uh, he's entitled to his view, obviously, but I think it's a little bit rich coming from that side of the Atlantic to talk about uh, in a situation where we're talking about jobs, we're talking about people whose livelihoods depend uh, on the good relationship between the U.S. and Ireland. We're talking about a president who's pledging to take job, jobs back. For Ireland not to engage would have been absolutely foolish. Brendan Keenan, how do you think that Taoiseach did? I think he did uh, brilliantly. And um, like Larry, I find this debate astonishing that it even, you know, gets done. I mean, you only have to look at the prime first minister of this totally unimportant country, of no significance to anybody anywhere. That's what Irish people won't accept, right? Sitting beside the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States in a hall filled with the cream uh, of American politics. Now, the thing about, I'm sorry, I haven't got his name in front of me, uh, the piece you just been talking about, he, Mark he, yeah, he's an American, he's yes. a Democrat, yeah. he's entitled to play US politics. Mm. Yeah, he served the as I- governor of Maryland. Yeah, the idea that this two-bit state that has been given this extraordinary privilege should play American politics. But I like the piece by Mark Humphreys in the Sunday Times, he's an academic, yes. who gives the list of the people mm admired by the people who are complaining about Trump. And that list includes Fidel Castro, Kim Il-sung, Jerry Adams attended his thing, uh, uh, Suarez, even Adolf Hitler coming them on, which would have been a Republican socialist group at the time. And indeed, uh, <laughs> my, my father's, or my uh, people I knew, actually, I, uh, it was Brian Moore, but I knew this myself from Belfast. All the priests in St. Malachy's College were hoping oh, the Germans yeah. would win, but that's a bit different thing. <laughs> I, and, but the, and, and every second-rate tin-pot South American dictator who has ruined their country 
latest being Chavez, Venezuela was a working, successful country till he got his hold of it, are all heroes to the people who say we shouldn't go and talk to the elected president of, of a great democracy. It's absolute nonsense and, and it shouldn't get even get considered. John Lee in the Irish Mail on Sunday points out that Minister Sean Canney was in China last week and the country's a notorious human rights violator and Chief Whip Regina Doherty was in the United Arab Emirates. And so they should be, by the way. They're, they're not these left-wing Republican socialist cheerleaders for any idiots. This is a state. These are ministers and states deal with each other. You talk about, somebody's talking about leprechaun politics. This Team is the lepre- Yeah, this is the leprechaun politics, right? That we can run about believing the fairy story that Ireland is entitled to decide which country in the world it will deal with and which country it won't. But Gina Menzies now, you have theological training. Surely there must be some moral centre to all of this, is there? Well, I was going to reference your own piece in The Independent. Oh, do! <laughs> that was going to be my starting point. It, it wasn't on our list, but I picked it up and I actually thought it was, it was, it was very well put. Because what did I what say you, in the What you sort of said was, you know, uh, in, the, in the preview, in the Irish media preview commentary on the visit, you said, I picked up the usual relentless sneering and criticism from Irish hacks um, you know that this was this was a disaster and that he shouldn't be going and that it was demeaning and all the rest of it and then you said well then I actually listened to it and you know what was quoted there you know ended talking about the compassion of America and the opportunity uh, we came and we became Americans and then uh, I think this was the best paragraph that summed it up if you don't I'm mind my quoting it <laughs> uh, what you said Sarah was the Irish media couldn't see it because they wrote the narrative before Kenny set foot in America. And I think that sums it up. There was this anticipation. There was almost a hope, I think, in some of the media that it would fall apart and that Enda would, here's another way we can bash Enda. And I think they were really stunned when they saw the international media um, and the response from around the world, from the hacks around the world and the New York Times who said this was extraordinary. And I think it was extraordinary because I did think in the run up to it, gee, if that was me, how would I conduct myself? How would I handle it? And Pat Lee had a line in the um, in the Irish Times yesterday. He said, you know, if Enda had gone and had a sneering expression on his face, you know, what good would that have done? I mean, you know, the, the primary obligation of the leader of a country is to do the best for their country. And he absolutely, you know, he absolutely nailed it. And it was incredibly tough gig. Well, and if you just look at, sorry, just one other thing. I was talking about the, you know, uh, the, if you like, the body language. If you saw the photograph of Merkel and Trump, I mean, there was an, an, an a, a very clear distaste between them. Now, it's better that we try and get on with these people. We may not like Trump and I don't like him and I think his politics is actually, or is awful. But, you know, Ireland has a, an interest and has an opportunity. I think, as Brendan said, wouldn't we have been the stupidest nation on the earth to have, you know, disregarded that? And it's not immoral if you want to go back to the immoral. It's not immoral to sort of, you know, to, 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 to fight for your country and your country's interests at home and abroad. Larry, my point about um, that I was making in the Sunday Independent was that clip that we've played from um, Enda Kenny's speech was not played on Mm -hmm. RTE. I saw it on Channel 4 and it's been viewed 21 million times and has gone viral around the world. So, and now the media does this all the time, not just in relation to this specific thing where they'll choose a narrative 
even for example when Donald Trump went to visit Barack Obama bef- uh, just after he was elected mm-hmm. all the photographs that were printed showed them being really grumpy and cold <laughs> with each other and then a couple of days later somebody published all the photographs where they were actually smiling and happy the narrative was chosen and the bits that fitted that narrative got published um you know, it's it goes on all the time. I, well, I think in this instance, I think a huge amount of what's coloring the domestic political coverage is the Taoiseach's departure and when that's going to be. Uh, and I think a lot of journalists would take the view that they don't want to lionize this guy because what will how will he react? Well, maybe I'll stick around to, for another couple of years. Uh, so I think that that aspect of things uh, is very much illuminating what's happening. And and again, uh, just to, to be fair, to be perfectly frank, I mean, uh, you know, I praise the Taoiseach. I think he was excellent in Washington. But at the same time, I also think it's time for him to go. And we will get... That one, one, Sarah, I think you're absolutely right. It took three days before uh, an Irish viewer found out what had actually happened in Washington. Mm. It was an appalling piece of incompetence. Now, I don't agree with Larry's theory as to why it happened. I just... uh, Gene is right. They weren't expecting it. They didn't even have the sound right. And so that extraordinary speech, you know, and is very good at delivering a speech and he would have a hand in writing it, but so would other people. An extraordinary speech because uh, it was in Larry's views on this. I mean, immigration is the big issue in the United States and in many other countries. Here's a foreign leader who comes over and deals with it and gets away with it. And, you know, it, the, one th- the one thing that journalists, you know, should never fall into, and we all do, is thinking we know what's going to happen before it happens. Yeah. And that's what happened this time. And the coverage of it uh, was, was well, and even worse than that, I don't want to do a, and a Kenny a good turn. But, you know, my experienced journalists don't think that way. Uh, they, they blew it because they expected something completely different to happen. Now, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has just finished giving an interview to Sky News. Here's a bit of what she had to say this morning. I cannot, and I'm not alone here, I cannot simply... Uh, pretend that I don't have real fears that Theresa May will not get a good deal, she may get a bad deal or no deal, and that even a good deal will be significantly worse than membership of the single market. So this comes to the choice I had to make. I can, you know, choose to let Scotland simply drift through the next two years, crossing my fingers, you know, hoping for the best while fearing the worst, or I can try to set out a plan for Scotland now that gives at the right time the people of Scotland a choice. And I think it's right to plan to give people in Scotland the choice. And that's the choice of an independence referendum. Nicola Sturgeon speaking this morning to Sky News. And we'll be talking to Alex Massey, the Scottish editor of The Spectator, after 11. Brendan Keenan, are, are people still in a deep state of denial about the wreckage that is going to ensue in Brexit, one of the possible consequences being a breakup of the United Kingdom? Yeah, well, a lot a lot of people in the in the... You know, conservative government and the conservative party are are, are in a state of denial, and um, it is quite extraordinary. Uh, Colin McCarthy has a piece in the Sunday Independent, and um, I saw that program, which was done by the BBC's political correspondent Laura Kunzberg, um, and they don't have any arguments left. The Brexiteers, none. So they just sort of talk nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but I'm fascinated by Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, this is this is senior hurling, right? Mm. Um, the fact is that a, a a independence poll referendum in Scotland would not be carried now. It would be lost, and she knows that, and she has played this blinding bit of checkmate 
knowing that if she insisted on it, Theresa May would say no. So she had shifted the whole debate from having the independence to the London stopping them having it. And she may well have the option at some point uh, to call a plebiscite. Yeah. It doesn't have any legal significance. That, of course, would be one. <laughs> and she is taking advantage of the total illogical position uh, of the British government. And it's fascinating to know what actually, you know, she might ultimately want. There's no way of knowing. But the sensible thing would be that uh, she would, um, you know, I think the sensible thing for any Scot would be uh, to wait and see how this all pans out, you know. Uh, and the way she's playing it, uh, that may be well what they get, that there'll be no early independence referendum, but she has all her, her, her ducks in, in a row. But going back to your, your basic point, one of the reasons for thinking uh, that, you know, we have to wait is that it's impossible to believe that this monumental folly will actually come to pass in the end. Well, I on my show Talking Point yesterday, Sebastian Hamilton, the group editor of Irish Mail Newspapers, was saying that we really need to accept that this is an article of faith for uh, the Conservative Party, which is resurgent. Uh, we were talking about Nick Cohen in The Spectator saying that um, there was a Brexit cult and nobody could just get past this. So what Colin McCarthy is saying in The Sunday Independent today, he's talking about e, um, Ian Duncan Smith saying that he's happy to offer sweeping reassurances about the consequences of a hard Brexit without the slightest genuflection to the readily available facts. Um, but Gina, this is happening. This is what Sebastian Hamilton was saying. We need to get past the this can't be happening moment. It is happening and we need to start dealing with it. Well, I think uh, I'm not privy to it, but I do get a sense that behind the scenes, there's a lot of work going on in Ireland in relation to what may or may not happen. I mean, already you can see a movement in, if you like, the commercial world in that uh, companies are are looking at the Irish situation are looking at relocation. And already I know a number of English people who are living here who are now looking for Irish passports. So I think there's a lot of things going on, if you like, underneath the surface. And obviously they have to have plan A, B and C. I think the most extraordinary comment in the last few weeks was Boris Johnson at one stage was being interviewed and he said, well, it won't really matter if we don't get a deal. It'll be fine. I mean, we're the, you know, the, the level of political uh, insight, and I think you're right, you know, it's become an article of faith. I, I think the most serious thing is really that um, to have a sort of that simple majority uh, really was a disaster. I think two thirds for a, for a major, major shift mm. in, in any kind of political movement, I think there should need, there is a need for a two thirds, you know, majority to, to vote in favour of something. I mean, you can see that, you know, thinking English, British people are actually reeling under the consequences. And when you look at Nicola Sturgeon, I just think she is the most wonderful politician at the minute, male or female. I mean, you know, she's absolutely stunning in how she's handling all this and her confidence and the conviction when she speaks. And you put that beside, you know, Theresa May, who sort of almost seems to be wobbling when she speaks about it. And they've given no indication of what direction they're going into. But I do think that Ireland, and I think, I mean, going back to to end, I think, you know, Ireland punches way above its weight in Europe. And there are there are sort of 27 other countries that I think we have to make, you know, good relationships with. And it is really difficult. It is walking on a tight wire for Ireland. There's no doubt about it. But I think a lot is going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to because we don't need to be privy to it at the minute. Um, So, I mean, Scottish independence is one thing, but Larry Donnelly, a lot of talk in the papers today. Big full page piece by Justine McCarthy and Stephen O'Brien in the Sunday Times. 
people are now talking about a united Ireland, that this could be one of the logical consequences. It, What's your view on it, that? It, it could well be. I mean, a lot of people who know the politics and know the lie of the land better, better than I do are saying that this is really a realistic possibility within the next 15 years, you know, which is ex- absolutely extraordinary. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but uh, there is a lot of speculation to that effect. Uh, I think more broadly on the Brexit thing, there are definitely two narratives um, here. One is that Ireland is doing a lot behind the scenes and they're really working and they have a plan, etc. The other is that they're not doing anywhere near enough and that they should be much more aggressive uh, in asserting their interests. I certainly hope that the former uh, narrative is the one that's prevailing and that we are we do have a lot going on uh, on that front. But I, I think uncertainty is the name of the game at the moment. And, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the UK as well about all of this, because just to bring it back to the vote itself and, and to consider the domestic politics of this, let's look at what the animating impulse in the electorate was. The animating impulse in the electorate was we want to control our borders. Immigration was a huge issue. And if you look at why this happened, that's probably why it ultimately happened. That's going to shape the negotiations over the next two years. The also, other, uh, Brendan Keenan, yeah. yeah. The next five years are what counts, not the next 15 or the next 50. And a plug coming up, I'm writing about this for next Thursday. What they have done with all this United Ireland stuff is really mucked up the Brexit possibilities for Ireland. Because as um, Michael McDowell says... uh, He's writing in the Business Post. In the Business Post. And as I have written myself before, (laughs) the only way to get... uh, any kind of a deal for Ireland uh, in this thing is if Belfast and Dublin work together. Mm. It has to, first of all, it has to be an all-island arrangement, right? Uh, And secondly, the British are totally distracted, as we've just been saying, for obvious reasons. And what has happened in the North for all kinds of extraneous reasons is there is no Northern executive, and if there is another one, it's not going to work very well. So the opportunity to present to London and Brussels the two parts of Ireland with an agreed programme which would require the EU to do things that have never been done before. There's no precedent for the kind of plan that Ireland needs. And we're not going to get it now Mm. because of what has happened in the North, because the DUP, no unionists, will play this game again. And there was a chance that they would. And I think in 15, 20 years' time, there may still not be an United Ireland, but people will look back and say, oh, God, why didn't we do better on Brexit? Now, if it happens. I I think that really nails it, Brendan. You've explained it in a way that makes total sense, that the only, the best way for Ireland to get a deal is by North and South, (laughs) is to join together. And I think this distraction, this United Ireland is actually a distraction and well, is not the going to help. the are off the pitch. Uh, yeah, they when, won't I mean, play when, ball you look, when you look at the rugby match or you look at other sports where Ireland, you know, I thought it was wonderful Rory Best sort of was interviewed before that match. Sorry to go back to rugby, yeah. but there is a, an analogy. And he said, you put on the green jersey and you play for Ireland. I mean, I, that's, that's from, you know, an Ulster rugby player. And that's what Brendan is saying. You know, Ireland as this small little country needs to put on the green jersey and play to together and you know the, the United Ireland is way way into the future and it is actually a distraction at the moment uh, The other point that Sebastian Hamilton makes Larry Donnelly is that there's no point talking about the cost to the United Kingdom of Brexit because sovereignty is this idea that means so much more to them when it comes to the concept of a United Ireland you know, they had a 10 billion euro deficit last year. We had a 1.2 billion euro deficit. I really, really wonder if Irish people, North and South, were asked to 
vote on a united Ireland, would we look at the price and go, ah, no, you're all right, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think that that's definitely in the ethanol. I think as Michael McDowell is writing today, if there were such a vote, I mean, it would go down in, in the north, it would go down catastrophically if there were such a vote was held. Brendan well, Keenan. There's, the fa- there's a fascinating parallel with what I've just said about Nicola Sturgeon, right? Uh, Sinn Féin wants a border poll because they know it wouldn't be carried. Mm. And uh, it does two things for them. Uh, it keeps the dissident pressure, which is very severe, even in their own ranks, the dissidents about actually the, the storm and Belfast agreement. They can show them, look, we've had a border poll, you know. But also their strategy uh, is to maximize their political position in both Belfast and Dublin. And as a Republican strategy, it's a good one. Mm. Unfortunately, the collateral damage to the rest of us if they succeed. And the problem is that the the other political parties, particularly in Dublin, uh, do not seem to know how to respond to that. And if they try to outflank Sinn Féin uh, on the Irish question, they're going to lose. And that's where we are at the moment. Uh, Yeah, that's the sinister. You have two, in my view, you have two political parties which would quite like to have... are calling for polls which they would lose. Uh, the difference is that perhaps Sinn Féin would like to have it, but perhaps not. Perhaps they just want the argument. And, and like Nicola Sturgeon, they want London to say, no, you can't have it. And still with us are Larry Donnelly, Brendan Keenan and Gina Menzies. Now, poor Larry Donnelly. This idea was floated during the week by Enda Kenny of votes for immigrants, specifically in the presidential um, election. And despite all our soft soaping for immigrants, it's being slated in all the papers today. James McDermott in the Sunday Business Post why the diaspora shouldn't get the vote. Brenda Power in the Sunday Times says diaspora will lead us on a merry dance if we open up the vote. Niall Stanage in the Sunday Independent I'm a politically aware Irish emigrant and the last thing I want is a vote. There's one concession from Dan O'Brien underneath him in the Sunday Independent who says well he doesn't mind giving um, emigrants votes for president but not the Nordies. That would be a step too far. Now what do you think about it? Well, I suppose the first thing I should say is I'm on the advisory board of votingrights.ie, so that pretty uh-huh. much that, that flags my stance <laughs> on the issue. Uh, and I'm inter- interested to see that Niall Standage took a break from bashing Irish America to take a stand on another issue. Uh, but let's say the, the first thing. Uh, I'm struck by the extraordinary level of opposition here to this pro- proposition, and it really... I think brings to brings to mind this very funny paradoxical relationship Irish people have with immigrants. Despite all the lip service, there is a real mentality here of when you're gone, you're gone. And it, it's striking to me that that's animating so much of all of this. The first point that needs to be made is that Ireland is unusual. The vast majority of Western democracies allow their citizens living abroad to vote. The second point is that a lot of the, there's a lot of talk about timelines and how long it should be, et cetera. The vast majority of countries don't have any timelines. They can vote in perpetuity. This is not something that's that's unusual or radical. But the, it's, the, it's a very ordinary expression of democracy now. Because the main opposition is that it's disproportionate. We have millions of Irish, of Irish immigrants abroad. So if they got a vote, they'd outvote us. Well, uh, first, there are a couple of things. First, the numbers are exaggerated. And we talk about 35 million Irish Americans, et cetera. Only a tiny percentage of those uh, are entitled to passports. The, the, the total number of Irish passports issued by offices outside the state from 2006 to 2016 was just over nearly a million. And the number of current passports issued to citizens born outside the island of Ireland is 600. 34,000. Now, they're just the passports issued 
far more people would be entitled to passports. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's I think it's kind of crazy to suggest that all of a sudden, because uh, there's a, vo- a right to vote for the president, that uh, somebody whose grandmother is from Kerry is going to go get an Irish passport and then is going to run to the office and do all that's necessary to vote. It's vastly overstated. The fact is, just, just let me make one more yeah. point. The fact is, the current situation where somebody leaves this country, who's left this country two or three years ago, who owns property here, who pays taxes on that property, who has pension, who might have a pension here and is paying taxes on that, the fact that he or she is disenfranchised is a real affront to democracy. Okay, so Brendan Keenan, would you then limit it to some kind of qualification, you know, property here or a certain amount of time since you've left the country? Or does everyone who is entitled to a passport, which means if you have a grandparent who was uh, born in Ireland, then you get the vote? Well, I mean, I certainly take the view that only the governed should be allowed to vote. Now, the case that Larry has made, a person like that perhaps could claim, well, I am governed because so much of my assets and so forth. But I'm interested. Here's a curveball. You know, Larry says our our, our attitude to the immigrants, and this is kind of very naughty of us. I, I, I was watched. I went down to the, my own St. Patrick's Day parade in Bray, and then I was watching uh, the, the the news ones, all the local ones, and you know, all the foreign citizens who live in Bray were in the parade. Um, another parade was actually the theme uh, was our immigrants. And the one in Baladrin was all about the Syrian refugees. And it suddenly struck me, it's very easy to become Irish because, uh, you know, we, 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 it's, it's not a question of blood like it is for, for, for Germans. It's not a question of history like it is for the English. It's a question of kind of how you behave. Yeah. And if you come here and you join the GAA club or you go to the church and you can put on a green hat on St. Patrick's Day and you're Irish. And that's the reverse of the other problem. When you leave, you're something else. And that makes us, you know, very strange. <laughs> and it's absolutely no use to say what other countries do in a case like this. And it's not just a question about the numbers. It's because of our history and even the kind of doubtful kind of provenance of our state that we're not like those other countries. And we should ask the question of ourselves. And it you know, we we are better at assimilating foreigners than anybody else in yeah, Europe. At our, and it's the other side of that strange coin. Yeah, at our parade in Enfield, I took a photo and tweeted it of our Nigerian curate in a, a shocking green Mohican wig and his big load of shamrock. It was so funny. Yeah. Well, you transferred yeah. that to England, right? Yeah. If he had come out wearing a Union Jack, you know, and all the rest of it, that questions would be raised, and probably in France too. You see, you know, there's a different idea of citizenship in different countries. I'm not criticizing other countries. I'm saying don't look at what other countries do in this case. Do ask who we are and how this would deal, how we would deal with this. Well, now who we are as well. Um, Gina Menzies, uh, Bishop Casey. Uh, was buried um, uh, in Galway in the cathedral there. A um, lot of coverage about that. Gary Murphy in the Irish Mail on Sunday, who'd be joining us after the break, actually um, pointing out that Bishop Casey did not simply resign and leave the country. He was made resign and banished from the country by a cruel and callous church. Any other coverage that struck you? Well, what struck me during the whole week was, I suppose, um, the praise of um, Casey's social involvement and his work on behalf of justice and of of you know exiles and of the homeless particularly in the UK and that's all very well but I did think there was a 
something of a distortion because there was and you know I dislike intensely really talking about the dead I think the dead are dead but I just think the narrative perhaps needs to be a little bit uh, reformed I think Matt Cooper in the Business Post um, does it quite well when he said um, Casey's young son Peter was not among those to be loved he had been exiled along with his mother to allow Casey to save face and his career. And of course, that was the institutional church had this notion, as they have in relation to many other things, that we must save the institution. But, you know, he did deny his own son. He did deny paternity until it was exposed. And I think that really, you know, there is a hypocrisy at the heart of that, that I think we have, in a typical Irish way, we're going to be to speak only well of the dead. And I, I accept that. And I think in a way it's the right thing to do. But there was a supreme irony behind that and when you go back to you know the the famous or the infamous you know uh, mass in Galway where you had Casey and um, you had uh, Michael uh, Michael Cleary who was an extraordinary hypocrite who'd yeah. fathered two children and on the other hand was on the radio uh, you know talking about again Matt Cooper says you know he if I, Michael Casey he was revealed to father two children who've had regular sexual relationship with his housekeeper despite loudly and regular regularly chastising women and their, for their supposed loose morals. So I'm glad that somebody like Matt Cooper has slightly, you know, reconfigured, you know, all, all the words and praise that were said about Casey. Um, because I think there was a denial of a son and to me to deny your son and of course just connecting it with the other big story of the week to do with, you know, um, the, the mother and baby homes. I mean, it is interesting that there were no fathers in any of those homes yeah. and ended again going back to Enda made one really significant statement in the doll in relation to it and he said you know did all these women self-impregnate Yes mm. yeah that struck me too a lot no fathers um, so Larry Donnelly you know it was a long time ago people were shocked you know when Annie Murphy went on the Late Late Show how do you see the evolution of the church now? Well, I, I think Gina's point is very well made. But I think that the, the narrative that st- sprung up this idea that he wasn't the worst of them, to sum up the coverage, that's kind of what, it, what it's boiled down to. And I think that that's because of all of the appalling things that we have learned in recent years that are especially painful for those of us who, hands up, I'm still a mass-going Catholic. Uh, I think it, it's very painful for, for us. And that's why uh, I think that the death of Bishop Casey is being covered the way it has. Mm. Well, look, we will leave it there. So my thanks to Brendan Keenan, business columnist with independent newspapers, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer in NUI Galway, and Gina Menzies, theologian and lecturer in medical ethics at the Royal College of Surgeons.